Well, yesterday, the security of our world became far less certain. As many of you, no doubt, have read and heard, Hamas, a terrorist group operating within the Gaza Strip, launched an unprecedented attack upon the state of Israel. Israel is calling this their 9-11. They see it on that scale. And undoubtedly, they will respond. And the response will be war. It's a bit unsettling. Anytime anything in that part of the world, that cauldron that always seems to be in a stir, flows over and erupts, it unsettles the whole world. And it reminds us of just how fragile peace is. How fragile this broken world is. It's unsettling. And yet, for us, as followers of Christ, people identified with Christ through this body at Heritage Baptist Church in the providence of God, we find ourselves in a text this morning that is perhaps one of the greatest New Testament texts on our security. That God keeps us. Our text this morning stands at the end of a letter that is filled with warning. This letter is a word of warning that stirs God's people to action. Jude warns his readers of infiltration in verse 4. Infiltration among God's people to lead them astray, to intentionally get them off course and cause them to fall and to stumble. He offers examples of this. This has always been the case throughout the history of the Lord's people, beginning in verse 5. He, he speaks of those who had good intentions and even were numbered among God's people, but in the end, they stumbled, they fell, and they faced the judgment of God. And after repeated warning and example that really is meant to stir us and shake us just a bit, he concludes with this in verse 24, now. The word now is, is to close off all other matters. Now here's the end of this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ be glory and majesty and dominion and power before all time and now and forevermore. He concludes with a doxology. 
The doxology is a song of glory and praise. And it praises God who is able to keep us from stumbling. There's an assurance here of God's ability to keep you and to present you blameless, to get you across the finish line, as it were. And this is a praise to God for that. The message this morning, I've entitled it Assurance of Preservation Leading to Praise. There's this assurance of preservation in verse 24 by which Jude erupts into praise in verse 25. So I'd like to preach to you on this topic, assurance of preservation leading to praise. Let's pray together. Lord, would you help us in the few moments that we have to really set our minds upon your truth be grounded in it, that we would be settled and secure, not in our own strength, our own ability, but because you are able to keep us and you are able to present us and stand us before you, blameless. And so may we have hearts of praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Why do you remain a Christian? Why do you continue to follow Christ when it puts you out of step with the majority of people in our world? when it leads to suffering, when it oftentimes leads to being maligned, ostracized, and perhaps even persecuted. Why do you remain? Why don't you do what others have done? and deconstruct your faith and simply wake up tomorrow morning and say, I no longer believe this. I choose to go a different direction. Why shouldn't you do that? Why shouldn't you just forget your Christian faith or think, this is boring. Why did I ever buy into this? I've wasted all these years of my life. There's so much more that I could have. I mean, honestly, do you ever feel like quitting? Do you ever feel like I can't go on any longer? I can't go on with the struggle and the discouragement and the despair. What's the use? I quit. Why don't you? I mean, 
Israel did. According to verse 5, this Israel that was led out of Egypt, that saw the miraculous things that God did through the plagues and opened the sea and brought them to Sinai, and yet the Bible says that Israel didn't believe. They said, no, we would rather have the gods of Egypt and go back there. Are you better than they? Angels did. According to verse 6, the angels of heaven left their right position under God and and sought after things that, that were not within their realm of authority, and they defied God's authority. Are you better than they? According to verse 11, Cain and Balaam and Korah, these three men that had unprecedented revelation from God, Cain hearing the very words of God, Balaam hearing the words of God and presenting those words, and Korah, a priest of God, and yet... They defected. They left those things. Are you better than they? Do you have more willpower than them? Are you more spiritual than them? Do you sit here this morning thinking, I would never do that. I'm a better person than that. Remind you that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, enlisting some of those very examples, tells us let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think you're above it in your own strength. You'll never fall. Why are you, why am I still a follower of Jesus Christ? There's only one answer. It's because God keeps you. He keeps us from stumbling. It is his power at work within us. And because God does that, He is worthy of our praise. And this is the message for us this morning. Since God marvelously preserves his people, he is worthy of our endless praise. I want us to note two things with you this morning. They're both in that phrase. The first of these is that God does marvelously preserve his people. This is what our text communicates in verse 24. It speaks of God who is what? What does it say, verse 24? Now, to him who is, say it out loud, to him who is, well, what does that mean? This speaks of God's ability to preserve you. It's not that it's saying here that that God is able to do this, but he might not. He's able if he chooses to. Rather, it's the assurance that God 
does this. It's fully within the scope of his ability, but, but this is exactly what he's doing. It's the word dunamis. Uh, that's the Greek word. We get dynamite from that. It's the word that means, means power. God has the, the power and the strength to preserve us. And my question is this. How do you measure that power? I mean, how would you, how would you measure the fact that God every day has to communicate to you spiritual life maintaining that so you and I don't destroy ourselves. What kind of ability is that? Do you measure that in kilowatts, right? I get my electric bill and it says you've used this many kilowatts and do I put that kind of number on what God does? to preserve me and and keep life communicated in my soul. I I don't know the measurement for that. It's it's an infinite measurement. Me, Matt Fagan, born into the world, dead in trespasses and sins, unresponsive to God in his ways, and somehow God (laughs) infuses life and maintains that life. That's an infinite kind of power. What does it take? I'll tell you what it takes. The text tells us in verse 25, it takes glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Because this is how these doxologies work. The thing that is being explained, God's able to keep us and to present us faultless, Well, it's these qualities of God that do that. His glory and His majesty, His dominion and His power. And this is what we praise Him for because those things keep us and stand us before Him. This is the ability of God to preserve us. We'll look at those things in a little more detail. God marvelously preserves his people. He has this ability that's measured in these qualities given us in the text. But God also is active in doing this. What specifically does he do? It's listed two ways in verse 24. There's a negative and there's a positive. The negative is this, keep us from stumbling. The positive is to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What is this activity that God is doing? He is preserving us. He is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, the older I get, the more I worry about stumbling or falling. It was just a few years ago that we were painting in our house, and I had to paint a stairway, and our stairway in the center of our house has a very high ceiling, and I couldn't get to it from the bottom stair, so I had to lay my ladder on the top step and and kind of lay it on another ledge and go out on that ladder to be able to stand on that ladder and reach the high places of that ceiling. And you ask my wife, I've I've never really been nervous about those kinds of things before, but I was pretty nervous. And I was telling her, I hope you really like this color because it's never going to (laughs) change. 
nervous about ultimately falling. And Jude, who has just communicated to his audience about people who have fallen. I mentioned those Israelites and those angels and those leaders. Listen, do you ever worry that someday you might fall away from Christ? You would think the older that we grow in faith and mature in the Lord, the more we would say, I'm so confident in the things I know about Christ now, I would never fall away. But my suggestion to you is the more closely you draw near to God, the more you see yourself. And the more I realize, were it not for God's grace, I would fall. I would stumble. And Jude says, God has all the ability to keep that from happening. It doesn't mean that God keeps us sinless. It's not saying that he keeps you from sinning at all in this world. The idea is, is falling ultimately, stumbling ultimately, giving up the faith. That's in the context of the book. He's writing to people, warning them. Others have crept in. They've, they're attacking the faith by how they live. Don't follow them. You may be tempted to do so. Don't fall. And he says, God is able to preserve you from that and keep you from that. He's powerful enough to do this. He says he's able to keep you. What, what is that word? That word is used actually in Jude earlier. The idea of that, if you'll go back to verse 6. He speaks of the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has what? He's kept them in eternal chains. Now, it's a different word than what's used in verse 24, but, but Jude already has this idea in his mind of a kind of keeping. And this kind of keeping is the idea of, of when you keep somebody in chains, what are you doing? You're guarding them. And just as God is able to keep those angels that left his authority bound up and locked and preserved, as it were, for their day of judgment, it says this God is able to keep you locked up in his grace, as it were, and, and preserve you in that way for that day of judgment when you will stand blameless. The Apostle Paul uses this word that's used in verse 24 in 2 Thessalonians 3. It's on the screen for you. It says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and what? Guard you. There's the idea of this word. It's like a prison guard. He will guard you against the evil one. These evil forces that have their sights set to trip you up and make you fall. God is able to surround you and guard you from that. It is impossible for anyone to remove us from his keeping. 
Someday, I, I think when we get to heaven and we finish the course and we are there by God's grace and God's keeping, perhaps on that day the veil will be taken back and we will look at our life and see just how tenuous it was. Just what kind of, of evil onslaught there was. What kind of spiritual battle was going on that we couldn't see with our physical eye, but maybe a bit sensed in our soul. And just what kind of danger we were in. And We will look at that and say, I could have never gotten myself out of that. I was not strong enough to stand against that. And we'll remember, he was able to keep me. To keep me from stumbling. What does God do to preserve us? Negatively, he keeps us from stumbling, but there's the positive aspect of this in verse 24. He's able to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What is it to present you blameless? There is kind of a play on words here. The negative was stumbling. The term for present is, is a word that at its root means to stand and it's the idea that, that he'll not only keep you from falling ultimately, but he's going to take you and he's going to stand you before him. He's going to plant you before his presence. And when he does that, you'll be in this condition blameless. Blameless, that is without blemish. It's a word that is used of, of Christ, a blameless lamb, a spotless lamb. And so the idea is here at the end when, when there is judgment and accountability before God, he will keep you from stumbling and in fact positively he's going to stand you up before him and you're going to be blameless just like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you stand before all of his glory, that's a frightening thought. This penetrating gaze of the all-knowing God. Jude said, he, he's able to plant you there with confidence and to present you without blame before him. In the first psalm, the psalmist writes, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. When the judgment of God comes upon them, they won't be able to stand blameless. They will be at fault, they have fallen and stumbled. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, Paul said this, You have been reconciled in order to be presented holy and blameless above reproach before him. Now think of that. Think of that, because think of how well you know you. How well you know you even this week, and maybe you've even had these thoughts like I've expressed this morning, I'm tired of this, I want to quit. How could God do this to me? How could this happen? Or you've dealt with anger or fear, frustration. And you wonder why those things don't ultimately eat me up and cast me off. 
It's because God is able to preserve you even through those things and present you blameless before him. And to do it in this way, look at the end of verse 24, with great joy, exuberant joy. It's not the idea of my personal joy that I will stand before God and be so glad in myself personally. It's the idea that when this happens and these people are presented before him blameless, it's a party. It's a celebration. And it's not a celebration because I've done a great job. I've finished the race. I overcame all those foes. It's a celebration because God has presented you that way. He has preserved you in that. And it's like we read of in Revelation 19 and verse 7. It's like a marriage feast and rejoicing that this final union has come, Christ and his people perfectly in heaven preserved forever. And let's rejoice. And it's great joy. This is God's activity. Keeping us from stumbling. Standing us before him blameless. Here's the question. What is the means? How does God do that? How does he keep us? Especially in light of this. Maybe you're thinking back to verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Say, wait a minute. I was to keep myself in God's love by building and praying and waiting. How does that work with God keeping me? Is this a contradiction? Well, let me just ask you this question. Why does anyone want to keep themselves in God's love? Why does anyone possess any kind of motive in their soul that says, I want to remain in God's love, and I want to do it by building and praying and waiting? Where does that desire come from? Well, it comes from me because I'm such a good guy, and because I've been raised in a proper Christian home. And therefore, I just naturally have these God-honoring desires to pursue him and know him and love him. And so it comes very natural to me, unlike other people, perhaps. Don't be fooled. The Bible is very clear. Nobody seeks after God. If there's any inkling of desire in your heart to know God, that's not from you. In fact, verse 24, God's keeping us, is actually displayed in verse 21. Therefore, you'll want to keep yourself. It works like this. The Apostle Paul said this, Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, work out your salvation. You know what we might say? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Do it with fear and trembling. Why? Look at the end of the verse. 
Because it's God who's doing what? He's working in you. The reason you do this is because God is doing something in you, and what is he doing? He's giving you the will and the ability to do his good pleasure. He's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That this is God's keeping. He's energizing a dead soul and trespassing sin and fusing it with spiritual life. But somehow there's something in my soul that says, I need to work out this salvation and draw near to God. The problem is we don't always recognize this. We make assumptions, like I mentioned earlier in the message, that, you know, I'm really just a pretty good person, and this is just kind of my culture, and this is why I do things, because I just kind of have this natural affinity this way, and this is my bent. But, beloved, when you drove here to worship with God's people this morning, and you passed people on the road, or or neighbors in their driveway, or people getting ready to enjoy the pleasures of this day... There's nothing inside of them that is telling them, you know what? You need to worship God today. You should spend time with God's people today and remind yourself of who's really important. And I hope that in your heart of hearts there was something in you that said, this is the right thing. Not only is it the right thing, it's the thing I want to do because I know this God. And I know what he has done for me. And I know that he is the greatest reality in all the world, and I need to remind myself in the congregation of his people to gaze at him. And do you know where that comes from? It is God working in you to will that. And not only to will it, but to give you the ability to do it. And do you know what that is? That's God's keeping He's keeping you. He's preserving you. We keep ourselves in the love of God by building, praying, and waiting. Why? Because God strengthens us to do those things. God works in us to do those things. This is the teaching of the New Testament. In fact, This is in fulfillment of what God said about the new covenant. God said this is what he would do in people like us in a new covenant age and ultimately in his covenant people in the future. God said this in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 40. He said, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. There is what we call the new covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me where? In their hearts that they may not what? Turn, fall, stumble. God said, this is what I'm going to do in this new covenant that was initiated by Christ and his death upon Calvary. I will put this in their heart to preserve them. That brings us back to our text. How does he do this? The means is he does this within us, but it's upon this basis, verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through who? 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. God does this ultimately because of his son. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us in our place. We're not good people. We're born in trespasses and sins. But God in his grace opens us to that reality that we would turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ and his finished sacrifice on our behalf and embracing him solely by faith that I then would be indwelt by his spirit that ignites in me these new desires and delights to follow him by which he preserves me. All of this through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are forgiven, we are saved, we are preserved, and ultimately we will stand blameless because we have his record. He's the perfect lamb. We're united to him by faith. We have the spirit of God within us at new birth. It's all through what Jesus has done. Have you ever come to Jesus Christ and received him that way? He's your only hope. Because only through him can we be blameless and stand in the day of judgment. This is what God does. This is his magnificent work to preserve us. God marvelously preserves his people. So what should our response be? Since this is true, God is worthy of endless praise. And that's how this little postcard epistle ends. In fact, if, if you were to define this sentence, as it were, diagram it, you, you really would do it this way. You would read it this way. Now, glory, majesty, dominion, authority... Before all time and forevermore, be to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the throne. It's this idea of these kinds of praises go to God because he's able to do these things. So what kind of praise is given to God here? Well, Jude speaks of God's nature. Look at verse 25. What kind of God is spoken of in verse 25? What's the qualifier before the word God? Only God. Are there other gods? Are there other creators? No, we know that Jude speaks to a, a Jewish audience primarily. He uses a lot of uh, Jewish examples from the Old Testament. And here Jude is tapping into that understanding of his audience. And he's saying, you know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is God. And he's saying, this only God, this alone God, this God of glory, Majesty, dominion, and power. This is the God who's keeping you. And not only that, he's the only God, and he's our what in verse 25? 
He's our Savior. When you think of Savior, which person of the Trinity do you think of? You think of Jesus. But this is defining God, which again is an Old Testament idea. When you read it in the Old Testament, how many times do you read God of our salvation? That's God our Savior. He's the deliverer. Judah's saying, this is the God we praise. He's the only God, and he's the only Savior. He's the only one that can do this. And he does it justly through his son. He's the only God, and he's our Savior, because he does this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we've seen. And then... Jude goes on to describe God's character in these ways. Because this is true, he's the only God, he's our Savior, he's able to do these things. To him be glory. Glory, this is his, this is, this is ascribing him glory, ascribe him his high state of honor, the, the public reputation of his fame. Give him his proper praise, his proper place. He's the glorious one. So ascribe him that glory that is due to him. Since, since God is the one protecting, saving, preserving, give him the glory. Ascribe that to him. To him be that proper place. <coughs> and also, he's the God of majesty. Majesty is the idea of greatness that inspires awe in the beholder. Majestic. We think of purple mountain majesty, right? I grew up in Colorado, and I oftentimes miss seeing the purple mountain majesty and the splendor. You get on top of Pike's Peak, and there's a plaque there of America the Beautiful where it was written, and in the line of one of those phrases is of purple mountain majesty, and it's all around you, and you're just taking it in, and it's majestic. And this says, there's nothing, no one more majestic than the God of all creation. Because he does things like this. He preserves dead people. Acknowledge his majesty. Acknowledge his dominion and authority. What are these two things? Dominion means his power or his might. We would say this is God's might to rule. He is powerful to rule. The, the underlying word is, is a word we actually get democrat from. Kratos is the idea of rule, and it's, it's through a democracy, right? Or people, and, and the people have the power, apparently. But, but here it's saying, God has the dominion. He has the might to rule. The might to command things, and they happen. <coughs> And unto him be the authority. Authority means he has the right to do that. Dominion is his might, ability, we might say. Authority is his right. He does not have his position because there's been a coup. And he somehow has usurped authority. He is the ultimate authority. He has the right to do as he pleases in heaven and earth. And none can question him. 
And God has had these things, the end of verse 25, before all time. When was that? Before Genesis 1? For all eternity? He has them now, and he'll have them when? Forever. So because God is glorious and majestic, he has dominion and authority, it's by these things that he preserves you and holds you, and he keeps you, and he will ultimately stand you before him someday in heaven. And Jude ends it this way. Amen. What does amen mean? Well, it's what people say in church when they're blessed, right? Amen literally means that's true. So be it. I affirm the truth of that. And this is how Jude concludes this doxology. So be it. This is the way it's going to happen. So what do we learn from this doxology? That since God marvelously preserves his people, he is worthy of our endless praise. Beloved, no one is going to enter heaven saying, boy, I'm glad I had enough stamina to finish that race. Boy, I squeaked by, but praise God, I made the cut. Boy, I really gave it my all. I'm glad I'm here. No, all of God's true children will say, praise be to God, he kept me safe. He kept me from stumbling. He's standing me before him. you struggle this morning with the thought that your faith is fragile? You don't measure up. You're deficient when others are strong. Maybe it's because you're putting too much confidence in your faith, your ability to trust and keep trusting. If it were up to me to preserve myself, I would fall. But God keeps us. He gives you the faith to believe. He preserves you. Luther put it this way. Did we in our own strength confide? Our battle we'd be losing. We're not the right man on our side? The man of God's own choosing? Ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. And he will win the battle. Luther said, if it were up to me in my own confidence to preserve my life to the end, I would be a shipwreck. But praise God, he will preserve me until the end through Jesus Christ. Why am I still a Christian? Why am I, Matt Fagan, still a Christian? 
It's because God is keeping me for his glory. He's doing it. He's able to do it. He will see it through. All praise be to him. Let's pray.